edition in our series in James's little letter in the New Testament. It's the end of chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and the end of the verses which comprise a kind of introduction to James. Verses 2 through 27, we're coming to the end of that today, really serve to introduce all the major background themes and specific or explicit themes of the letter. And the theme of this morning is the theme of religion or true religion. Now I've sometimes heard the Christian faith explained or defended by making, it attempt, making an attempt to differentiate Christianity from other religions, quote-unquote. Sometimes the way this is explained, that is to say the differences between the Christian faith and other religion, is to deny that Christianity is a religion at all. The saying I have in mind goes something like this. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Translation, the Christian religion is not so much characterized by things that you do as by having personal knowledge of and acquaintance with God. It's more like a partnership or a friendship, even a marriage. I don't object to this at all. Saying relationship, not a religion, can often be helpful. It can open the door for someone's enlightenment or understanding to some important truths of the Christian faith, like, for example, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people who are merely religious don't understand this. Sometimes it can shed light on what Jesus means when he said, you must be born again. Sometimes it can help people understand what Jeremiah meant when speaking for the Lord, he describes the new covenant as something which must be inscribed upon the human heart. I think it can also point out the relevant, how relevant the prophetic criticism in the Old Testament is when the prophets would complain that this people honors me with their lips, with their religion, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, they have religion, but no relationship. But the phrase does have its limits. Saying religion, not relationship, does miss at least two important points. In the Old Testament, first of all, there was never, ever a religion without a relationship. It doesn't exist. In fact, in the first major event of redemption, the book of Exodus, the Exodus out of Egypt, the Exodus wouldn't happen if God didn't have or want to have a relationship with his people and leading them out of bondage and bringing them out to the wilderness to worship with God, to be with God, in relationship with God at the foot of the holy mountain. The other thing that it misses is there is no or there shouldn't be any real difference between having a relationship with God and doing specific, we'll say, religious things with and for God. In fact, part of the burden of James is that you can't be merely a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. Being in fellowship with God implies that you're in fellowship with God's people. Having a relationship with God means you have a relationship with God's people, both current and future. 
the lost sheep who are wandering and perhaps don't even know what God expects of them. You see, problems arise when we make a false dichotomy between these two things, but nevertheless, taking refuge in your religion was a problem in Jesus' day, and it's a problem today, too. Sometimes our religion becomes an excuse. Checking boxes off on a list becomes a way of avoiding being honest with God or avoiding having a a heart-to-heart conversation with God or with one of God's people. You see, the intimacy in your relationship with God is the gold standard. It's the money in the bank account that underwrites or funds every single thing that we do with and for God in the world, particularly the things you say about God. Paul's criticism joins with James when he says that they have a form of godliness but deny its power. Commentator Robert Wall makes this observation. James's criticism is regarding a religion where what is said replaces what is done, where talk is substituted for walk, and where liturgy rather than lifestyle expresses Christian devotion, which brings us to our text this morning. This passage is one where true religion is described by James in a very brief way, but which is highly instructive. Apparently, James believes that people who follow Jesus in this fallen world as the messianically renewed community, the diaspora, this world in which we live, which is so often hostile to Christian faith, we need a reminder to not separate these two things. We need to know just what kind of religion God approves of. It's a holistic one. It involves both hearing and doing, both words and power. And James contrasts, therefore, the kind of religion that God approves of or that he loves and the kind that he disapproves of or that he hates. And you need to hear this, whether you're a first-time believer or even a seeker or a seasoned saint who's been walking with God through many, many, many seasons of life. Whether you're a parent and the head of a household with children and many responsibilities or a child still in your parents' household. No matter who you are or where you are on the spectrum, James has three important truths then about religion that you need to understand if you're going to live a life of faithfulness in a dark and hostile world. These truths are number one, worthless religion is deceptive and unholy. True religion is pure and holy. And three, you must test your religion. Let's go through these three points in a moment, but let's begin by reading this morning's portion of Scripture and asking God to bless the preaching for us today. James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the eternal word of God. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, 
and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So far the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for true religion, and we desire to hear from you now of what that looks like. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations on each one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For we ask this in Jesus' name, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The first important truth about religion that you need to hear this morning is worthless religion is impure and unholy and therefore displeasing to God. There are three elements here that are worth taking a look at from our text. The first element is that worthless religion is worthless. What does this word mean, worthless? It's in our text in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Worthless means it has no worth. If it's a wallet, no cash. If it's a car, no gas. If it's a cell phone, no battery, and no charging cable. What good is it? It's worthless. I have a vivid picture of worthless. In my side yard, I have a wheelbarrow which has one handle and no wheel. It's worthless. What is worthless about the religion which James has described is that it appears to involve all talk and no action. We're going to look more at this in a moment, but for now you should notice that James may be comparing this kind of religion that God is displeased with with idolatry in the Old Testament. So often the prophets would describe dead idols that the people worshipped instead of God as being vain or worthless. Jeremiah chapter 10, 14 and 15. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless. And this is interesting, Jeremiah 2, verse 5. What wrong did your fathers find in me, says the Lord, that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? So the important principle as an aside that the problem with idolatry is that we become like the thing we worship. And if you worship a dead, empty, vain, worthless idol, your faith and ultimately your life will become like this. And if you're a person who was converted as an adult, you can remember how empty and vain and dead and worthless your life was apart from God. If you're a young person who hasn't experienced what it's like to live out of covenant with God. May, may God bless you and may, may you stay faithful and never have to know a day apart from Jesus Christ and the worthlessness that comes with it. With this in the background then, I think James's description of religion that God hates as worthless isn't just separating faith from action or words from deeds. It does criticize this. We're going to see that in a moment. 
But we need to see in this word worthless, it's the first element here, an overall picture of the corruption of the world in your religion, the influence of, of a society that is hostile to God and at every point is trying to, to whack away and, and minimize and chip away and dilute and damage your faith. I want to speak particularly to, to young people, to teenagers, where your, your mind and your heart are still in formation. You're still actively thinking about God and, and learning about Him. Not that you ever stop, but there's something very important of the teenage years. You're being offered worthless things in exchange for the precious truths of your faith, and you might not even know it. Worthlessness. We're talking about looking at a religion that displeases God, and the elements here, I'm seeing three elements. The first is the element of worthlessness, and if you're going to know what displeases God, you need to know what's worthless. That's what I'm saying. The second one is this phrase, bridling the tongue. Bridling the tongue. Look at verse 26 again. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue. Now, bridle is part of a, of a of a harness for a horse that includes the bit. And the bit and bridle kindly direct and control this beautiful, massive animal and direct, directs it to the rider's desires. Of course, James is using a metaphor. I love the way that the Bible is poetic. Can you picture a horse? It brings an image into the mind, doesn't it? You can see the, the harness around the mouth. You can see the horse's teeth on that bit, see its ears flicking. And the bridle is, is a common metaphor, not in the Bible per se, but in ancient literature for describing how one uses self-control as one directs oneself throughout one's life. But the, the difference in the scripture, of course, is the source of self-control isn't your own power, but it comes from God. God has brought us forth by the word of his truth, James 1.18. He's implanted his word into you, which you receive with meekness, James 1.21. And therefore, you're a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and empowered by him. And so the bridle or the self-control of the tongue comes from God. But apparently, the problem of a religious person is that while you might think of yourself as religious, you lack self-control, perhaps in a number of areas, but specifically in this matter of how you speak. James actually is the only author in the New Testament to use this word bridle, and he uses it twice. It comes up also in James chapter 3, where it isn't the tongue that's bridled, although speech is being discussed, it's the whole body. He says, you bridle your whole body. So bridling is a is a metaphor, as I said, of using self-control over various parts of your body, the human tongue, the body, your whole life. Now, James has touched on speech already in James 1, 19 through 21. 
And in that passage, he instructs you to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But this passage seems to be saying something a little different. The hearing of James 1.19 comes right after God, by, the, by His Word, causes you to be born again. Be quick to hear that Word. Be doers, hearers of that Word. So there's something about hearing in 119 that focuses on the Word of God. And then there, the slowness to speak relates to the sort of silence, I think, first and foremost, you need to have in the presence of God. Even if you're talking to another person, what should be going through your mind is, Lord, what would you have me do at this moment? Let me hear your word in this conversation. But the speech in James 1.26, if James 1.19 speaks primarily of your duty to speak or not speak in the presence of God, which I think it does, James 1.26 seems to move into the direction of our duty to speak and how we speak to our fellow human beings. James is painting a picture, a classic picture of a religious hypocrite. This isn't just any religious hypocrite, though. I think this one is someone who's pretty well educated or learned in his knowledge, but whose life doesn't back it up. This is going to become a, a serious and repeated theme for James. I think we have here a warning which is hinting at what will come a little bit more fully in James chapter 3 where he says, let not many of you be teachers. And he goes on to ask the hypothetical question, who with much speaking can avoid sin? The problem with bridling our tongue though, I don't want you to limit it just to religious teachers or pastors. They are the serious first-class hypocrites in the church. People who lack self-control with their tongues include others as well, seminary professors, women who lead conferences, authors of Christian books, speakers. I think particularly in our chatty-chatty world of social media and people who are big bloggers and podcasters, so many words, so much to say. I wish, I, I, I don't wish for a pope, but if, if we had somebody who could sort of be in charge of all the Bible-believing Christians out there, I'd like them to check their, their church membership card before you get to say one word on the computer. Do you have a church? Do you have a pastor? Do you have elders and women and men who are holding you accountable for your faith? Are they holding to the, to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints? Are you just a, did you just put out a shingle and become an expert speaker? You've got lots to say. But James isn't just for big people. I think James' warning is for anyone at any time during the day or the week or your life who have something eloquent to say about God in a text message to your friends or comments to your parents, conversation over dinner and drinks, but your life doesn't live up to it. You need a bridle for your tongue. 
What is the religion that God hates? It's worthless, first of all. It lacks self-control, particularly with words. And finally, it is deceptive. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. It's interesting. The text, James so often just kind of puts it out there. He leaves you to sort of piece it together on your own. Where is this deception coming from? Are you deceiving yourself that you have something to say? It might mean that. Are you deceiving yourself that your religion is worth something? That might be what it means. Is it that you think you're religious? He says thinks. It seems. It seems good. I, I think it probably means that, but no matter how you look at or read this verse, deception is embedded as the twin to worthless religion. God loves true, uh, true religion, which means God loves truth. He is a God of truth, and He disapproves of any and all falsehood and lying in your faith. And notice the deception is located in the heart. He deceives his heart. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? You even don't know your own heart, apparently. And then this encouraging verse about the heart in 1 John chapter 3, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It seems like John and James understood one another. Continuing again, 1 John 3, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. I love this verse in John. God is greater than our hearts. It's the gospel right here. Hope for the deceived heart or the heart that is being deceived is that God is greater than our heart. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. True religion, religion that God hates, is religion that doesn't acknowledge that God is greater than our hearts. It's deceived in the heart. It doesn't look for wisdom in the midst of trial, James chapter 1, 2 through 8. It doesn't rely on the community, the, be the beloved brothers. It isn't content to stay in the narrow path or the way of God's word. It often questions God's character. Let none of you say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, James 1.13. True religion wants the good news, but false religion wants the news without the good news. The good news is that Jesus died for me and he is sufficient for all of my sins. I am content to be his servant because he shed his precious blood and made me one of his own. So that's the first important truth about religion. If you're to live a life which honors God and blessed by God in a hostile and negative world, you need religion. But worthless religion is of no help to you in this. It's impure and unholy and God hates it. 
The second point, though, is positive. True religion. What kind of religion pleases God? It's pure and holy. Look at verse 27. I see four elements here that are worth unpacking. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction or in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Do you want to have true religion? The first important element then is that it is integrated. The text refers to this as being pure and undefiled or holy. Something that's pure has no component parts. It's one. An integer in mathematics helps us here. It's a whole number. Two and a half, no. One, yes. Three, yes. Two. It's a whole number. So true religion is is an integer. There are no fractions. There aren't a million little pieces in the in the true believer's life. Someone who is of sound mental health is someone who is not double-minded or triple-minded or quadruple-minded, but single-minded. There's an old Methodist saying in the church I grew up in, true religion has one design, one desire, entire devotion to God. Now it's a little idealistic, but it makes the point. Second, notice who decides what is integrated or pure and holy or pure and undefiled. 27, religion that is pure and undefiled. What does it say? Before God the Father. Human beings don't decide what is approved, approved in this matter of religion. It's not about human tradition. It's before the Father that religion is judged, either to be pure and holy or impure and unholy, either pleasing to God or displeasing to Him. This shows that while man looks on outward appearances, God looks at the heart. This is important because while James is eminently practical through his book, he never loses sight of God and the presence of God and God's grace. The fact of the matter is that True religion is a matter of the heart, or the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. To illustrate this, I love the Latin phrase, corum Deo. Maybe you've heard of this before, corum Deo. Deo means God, and corum means before the face of. We do all that we do, corum Deo, if we're practicing true religion. We eat, drink, we sleep, we work. Whatever you do, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10.31, do all corum Deo to the glory of God. I have kind of a funny illustration of this. In college, um, there were two guys to a room and they shared a bathroom in between. And the ones you shared the bathroom with were called your sweet mates, S-U-I-T-E. So there were four of us. And I... Came to college, like a lot of people, looking to get a degree, get a job, make lots of money, and meet lots of girls. Party. And in God's kindness to me, he stopped me in my tracks. 
and he changed me. He changed everything about all of my priorities, and he turned me from a person that was living for myself to someone who's living quorum Deo before the face of God. And as a new Christian, I put Bible verses everywhere in the, in the dorm, including in the shared bathroom. I thought, maybe my sweet mates will read this. Well, they did. He did. And he said, I didn't know this about him. I just knew he, he played a loud electric guitar at all hours of the night. He says, Phil, I'm Jewish. I didn't know that. I said, well, the verses I put up on the wall are in the Old Testament. You know, or the mirror. I put them on the mirror in the bathroom. He says, I know, but in my religion, I'm not allowed to think of God while I'm going to the bathroom. So I took him down. But if I can say this without being too trite or uh, silly, even while you're going to the bathroom, there isn't one part of your life, one moment of your day where God isn't concerned for you. Where He doesn't love you. Even something as mundane as eating or sleeping or going to the bathroom, preparing yourself in the morning and whatnot. The third element, true religion, is not only integrated, it's quorum Deo, before the face of God. Third, true religion cares for neighbors. Now, there are two neighbors mentioned specifically in the text. Do you see what they are? These are especially needy neighbors. They're neighbors in distress. They are neighbors which are too often ignored. Who are they? Orphans and widows in their affliction. These needy persons are, are classic categories in the Bible, and I'd like to uh, give a shout-out for a moment to our dear sister in the faith, Doris Harrison, who's gone to be with the Lord almost a year ago. And in an ironic, not-so-ironic coincidence, the Sunday after her service, I preached on the widow's might, and Doris was the special, dedicated person for that sermon. I don't usually dedicate a sermon to a person. Obviously, sermons are for God, but this sermon was special. And I went to great lengths and did a deep study, deep dive in the Bible and what it teaches about widows. I'm not going to repeat that here. But it is relevant to think about how many of the elderly women in the world are widows and how many of them are lonely and ignored. My wife is a great wife, and one way you know it is that when she works a 12-hour shift on Saturday night, she still comes to church. She's here this morning. She cares for these dear widows. She gets paid to do it. But we pray every time she goes into the hospital at Jefferson that she would be the hands and feet of Christ, that she'd bring light and love to someone who's neglected. How are we doing with this? I think we need to start closest home with our own parents, and I know these aren't easy questions, and some of you may not have parents anymore or may not have the ability to care for them for various reasons. Certainly as a church, it's worth us thinking about how we are ministering to these two specific groups, orphans, fatherless, ex extremely vulnerable, and the widows.
But the point isn't just these two categories. He's taking the extremes to say every single person you meet is a kind of neighbor to you and you are to care for that person, particularly when a man or a woman, a child, a boy or a girl, a rich man, a rich woman, anybody in between. If, if that person's in distress, that's where we see your religion really get its worth There was a comment or a uh, proverb, Scott may remember this, um, in the beginning of Mercy Hill, we used to talk about being a church for the last, least, and lost. That's what this is. That's why we picked the name Mercy Hill. Not every church are there people around where you can say, yeah, we, we picked that name. I didn't pick it. Scott and my wife picked it. What do we mean by mercy? At least this. True religion. The fourth element, it's integrated. True religion is determined by God. It's before the face of God. Secondly, thirdly, it's neighborly. And by the way, each of you are a missionary to your neighbor. You need to know your neighbor's names. If they have children, you should know their children's names. Um, I had the privilege of inviting one of my neighbors to the men's fellowship. He had to cancel at the last minute, and so I wasn't able to go, but... But he, he was, I actually invited three of my neighbors, three guys, to that. And one of them said yes. That doesn't happen overnight. So neighboring. And then the fourth element I'm calling true religion is pious. P-I-O-U-S. Pious. Personally pious. I think that's what unstained by the world means. It means you live a holy life. Personally individually, secretly, the way you spend your time, the websites you go to on the computer, the friends you keep, the things you talk about, the things you think about. Your emotional life is godly. It's holy. It's reverent. You're a Ten Commandment kind of guy or gal. I'd like to illustrate this by pointing out uh, something I'll call Tim Keller's three groups in the PCA. Too often the church is divided into camps, different factions, and that's true in our denomination as well. The PCA is a fairly large denomination. It's not huge. Something like two or 3,000 congregations, over a million communicant members. And in this big group of people known as the PCA, we have groups. And Tim Keller pointed this out in an essay that he wrote several years ago that I heard him read at a general assembly. I think it was 2015 or 2016. He talked about in the PCA you have social activists, you have doctrinal people, theologian types, and then you have the pietists, personally pious. So the social activists are Reformed Christians who really believe in making a difference in the world. The theologians are like, what's the Bible verse for that? They're fact-checking everyone. And then the personally pious is, I don't care about the world or the Bible. I just want to pray and listen to the Spirit. And we have all three of those groups in our denomination. And I suspect in this church, 
And Pastor Keller's point was all three are needed in any healthy church or any healthy denomination. So while James emphasizes personal piety, notice how he joins it to social activism and theology before the face of God. So all three are woven together, I think, in this passage. I also want to include a challenge here to students. Unstained by the world includes the way you think about your studies. As you prayerfully consider a future career, a job, you know, joining the economy, being a productive citizen, voting, these sorts of things. As you consider your future in a day of confusion, particularly about sex and sexual identity, your future needs to be anchored to who you, are, who you have been made by God to be. And piety, an, un, an unstained life by the world, involves submitting to how he has created you to be. I mentioned last week, the best version of yourself. It's not just for you to decide. God has a, a picture in mind. Commit yourself to that as you move into studying history or science, and literature, music. You see, the world isn't the good things that God has made, like I've just mentioned, that list of things. Art is, is beautiful and wonderful. The world is the unbelieving framework that we live in that has taken God's good things and polluted them and corrupted them. And I want you to move into these different spheres where you're called, whether it's math or whether it's in healthcare, or whatever it may be. Many of you are doing this as an unstained, unpolluted missionary, word and deed, bringing the light and love of Christ, the first fruits of the new creation. The third important truth is that you need to test your religion. So the first truth is this is what's false. Second is this is what's true. The third truth is you have to test yourself. If anyone thinks... Some of you think you're doing fine. And James is offering a test. It's a, it's a kit. It's not a COVID kit. It's a true religion kit. You tear it off. You stick the swab wherever you stick the swab for a true religion, maybe in your brain. Those swabs seem like they're going up to your brain. If there's a swab that could be entered into your soul, your heart, that's the test. How are you doing? Well, you need to test yourself in light of what stage of life you're in. Are you a new believer? Do you know what true religion is? Have you, have you read the Gospel of Mark if you're just getting started in the faith? Are you a leader in this church, an elder, a deacon, or a woman that leads other women and leads ministries and teaches? Have you read the whole Bible this year, last year? Are you immersing yourself in the story of God? Test yourself. What's the hypocrisy test? Maybe this kit, this true religion kit that I'm, I'm just making up this idea is, it has several tests in it. Maybe there's a hypocrisy test. How are you doing with your teaching is spot on, but how's your personal piety? Have you let your, your walk with the Lord slip? Are you running on yesterday's manna, as I sometimes like to say? 
Are you deceiving yourself? You see, the need for testing is, is part and parcel with the fact that we tend to lie about how, we're, how well we're doing. You know, it's the other guy that has the problem in his faith, not me. Particularly, I think you need to test yourself with your words. How are you doing in speaking, in your, in your Christian speech? Is swearing an issue for you? How, how's your thought life? Do vain worries run through your brain over and over and over and over again? How are you doing with anger? Do you blow up at your spouse or at your roommate? Do you seethe? Are you harboring resentments against someone? I wonder what would happen if we just, if we picked one of our top two or three resentments and just decided, I forgive that person. Well, you'd see it. A tidal wave of revival move through the church. Test yourself. Does it seem like you have good, a good walk with Christ? Is your religion strong? Does, it, is that how it seems to you? Well, just reread 22 to 25. Look in the mirror of Scripture. Of course, you need to be reading the Scripture at some level. What is the Scripture telling you? I pointed out last week that some mirrors in Scripture are dim and vague and we're waiting for the real thing not just an image this mirror actually is more like the mirror of a powerful telescope it tells you exactly what you need to see just a question if you're paying attention you know i hesitate to say test yourself because i know some of you have such a sensitive conscience that the minute i say you need to test yourself and see whether you're really a christian you begin to immediately worry Am I really a Christian? As an aside, this is the topic that many pastors deal with. It's called assurance of my salvation. Some of you struggle with assurance, with, with knowing, does God love me? Am I really His? The problem with raising this question is all the wrong people listen. If you struggle with assurance, me raising the question is just Sort of fuel for the fire. See? I'm not really a Christian. I knew it. But see, the people that are worried about assurance don't need to worry anymore about assurance. They need to worry less. That's why I read 1 John 3. God is greater than your heart. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 said, I don't even judge myself. The Lord is my judge. And then on the other side, the people who are deceiving themselves are like, ah, I don't need to listen to that part. Assurance, I'm good. I'm an elect, baby. Saved. Signed, sealed, and delivered in the blood. Well, before I close, I wanted to, I mentioned, I've already mentioned someone's name. I'm going to mention two people, or three, as I thought about my life who characterized true religion. First of all, my mother. Second of all, my grandmother, my father's mother, Lois. These two women, they have true religion. And third of all, though she would deny it and say she's not where she needs to be, my own wife. I am so thankful for these godly women in my life 
that modeled for me true religion. As I close, there is a saying, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. I'm not sure I agree with it. As I think about the 20th century, it seems to me that it's irreligious bad men who have been the worst. If you just count up the bodies, for instance. Now, maybe in other centuries of human history, we could lay the blame at the feet of the religious guys. But why are we arguing about who's worse, especially as a Christian? I have to be humble and recognize in my own religious history as a Christian, the Christian faith, Christendom down through the centuries, so much badness has been perpetrated in the name of God. So much talk and so little action. How's your religion? How are you doing this morning as you think about this? Is it true? Let's not take refuge in empty religious traditions or practices, but let's take refuge in the one man. I mean, my mother's an amazing human being, but she's certainly not perfect. There's one man who models this verse without any impurity cared for all the widows and orphans perfectly, and that man is Jesus. That's the one that the Father himself, before God the Father, the Father said, this is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Hear him. So if your religion is about as bad as mine, why don't you take refuge in Christ, whose religion is approved and pure before the face of God? Corum Deo. Take refuge in Christ and be strengthened by him to live out a life that points to Christ in a world that so desperately needs to hear that message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this test. And there are surely more tests to come in, in James's letter, but this is an important one this morning, particularly as we think about how we are living our lives, particularly as a, as a man who has much to say, a man who speaks much. I need to hear, Lord. As a man, I need to hear this about bridling my tongue. I know others, men and women, agree. But it isn't just self-control of the mouth, Lord. It's our whole lives that's required here. And for that, we need your Holy Spirit. We need your grace. We need Christ, who is wholly harmless and undefiled, who never sinned even once, always did what was pleasing to you, was truly the beloved Son. Would he be our guide and our inspiration as we seek to live out the truths before us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions.
Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.